All right, we are in the book of Isaiah. Um, I want to jump right in. Last week, we began a series called God Made Known. And I'm very excited about this, just to focus on just God. Like, don't we do that every week? Like, yes, but we just want to specifically slow down and talk about who is God? What is he like? Uh, We want to look at the characteristics and attributes of God. When God made himself known, so often he did through his character, through his attributes. And I'm very excited just to slow down and focus and talk about, God, what are you like? What are you doing? And who are you? How do we relate to you? I really do believe this will change how we pray, how we serve, how we interact with each other, how we worship. It changes everything about us, our view of God. Uh, A.W. Tozer said, the most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think about God. I think that's so true. The most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think about God. My hope, in a sense, is like, this is like theology, right? The study of God. Theology just means the study of God. Our hope is to create little mini theologians, like when it comes to God. Now, here's my fear in this. My fear is as we talk about the attributes and the characteristics of God, is that in a sense, God just becomes like a, a class or some sort of topic in school. My hope is not just to know about him in an intellectual sense, but that we could truly know him personally. Like, that is so important to me. As we talk about God, who he is, what he's like, I really don't want to fall into the trap that we just have more information and knowledge about him, but we still don't know him. So I'm very excited for this series. This is time to talk about God. But my hope and my concern is that we truly know him and not just know about him. Amen? This is very important. I want to point this out. As we're doing this, I really do sense that the Lord is trying to create within us just a sense of community and worship. Like, I, I think as we talk about God, I really do believe and I'm expectant that God would just kind of restore our hearts of him. You know, I think in, in some ways, maybe we're like anemic when it comes to our view of God. Maybe we're malnourished in this area. Maybe I think this is a part of our life. Like, God, who are you? What are you like? I think the enemy, when he attacks God, he usually attacks God's character. And so we want to redeem and restore our, just our view of God. I want us to have a high and lofty view of God. And I think as we, as we do this, God is just going to create within us this sense of worship, this sense of awe, this sense of beauty, and that is why we're doing this. Amen? One author, uh, Stacey Woods, says, the church is getting away from worship. I wonder if it's because we're getting away from God. She connects just worship to God. There's so many topics we could talk about. We we've got, went through the book of 2 Corinthians last year, for like the, the year, 1 Thessalonians. I love going through passages, and I love exegeting a passage and walking through it. That's beautiful. But I think even sometimes, we're like, God, who are you? I don't want to just know your word. I want to know the author behind the word. And so that's our hope as we're studying just the character and nature and attributes of God. That's like why we're going through this. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of those famous preachers of all time, says this under this, this topic. He says, unless we understand what the Bible tells us about God, our worship can never be real. So for us to have real worship, we got to know who are we worshiping? Who are we singing to? Who are we praying to? Who are we seeking? Who's seeking us? We need to understand who God is and what he's like. Yes? All right, a couple more things. All right, this is, I know, a longer opening, but just bear with me. I feel like this is the first week in some ways. Like, we started last week, but this kind of feels like the first week. Um, As we talk about now the attributes of God, as we walk through these, it's going to be really interesting because we're going to talk about, yes, God is grace. God is good. God is just. God is sovereign. God is omni. Like, we're going to look at all the the attributes of God. Not all of them, but we're going to look at many of them. And as we walk through this, I think there's a danger in sometimes maybe highlighting one attribute above the rest. Meaning, yes, God is love. But God is also just. And we, we got to understand as we talk about the attributes of God, it's not that one overpowers another. They work together. And so they're not supposed to be seen in a silo. 
They're supposed to be seen together. Does that make sense? Tozer, in his book, The Attributes of God, says this, and this is probably the best definition, and this is why I want to share this. He says, God's attributes are not God. I say that God is holy, but holiness is not God. I say that God is wisdom, but wisdom is not God. God is God. An attribute is something which God has declared to be true of himself. An attribute of God is something we can know about God. It is knowing what kind of God God is. So this is a way for God. God has to use language to communicate. Here's who I am. It's the infinite trying to explain himself to the finite. And so this infinite God is like, I'm going to explain. So here's the idea. God is knowable but incomprehensible. God's like, I want to make sure you know me, but there's also a side of it where it's like, he's incomprehensible. I think it's a beautiful place to be in. It's a a beautiful place to be in because like, God, I can know you, but at the same time, I have to just worship you because I'm also kind of left kind of speechless. And there's something really beautiful that happens and takes place when you look at it this way. So as we now jump into these attributes of God, I got to clarify a couple of things. Uh, There are something people, you know, smarter guys, guys smarter than me, clarify as just the communicable attributes of God and the non-communicable attributes of God. And simple definition, the communicable attributes of God are, are usually his moral attributes, but they're attributes that he will share with us. So God is good, and we, to an extent, can be good. God is holy. We can and are called to be holy. Now, yes, imperfectly, not the way God is, but there are certain attributes of God that he's like, hey, we're made in God's image and we get to participate in also being like having these attributes in our lives, though imperfect as they are. But then there are attributes called the non-communicable attributes, and these are attributes that God, God alone has. Obviously, God being omniscient or omnipotent or transcendent, majestic, like there are certain attributes of God that are just to God and God alone. So think of this, communicable, think community. God shares these with us. Non-communicable, like this is just for God and God alone. Yes? Make sense? So we're going to kind of jump back and forth as the weeks go on. We might look at some communicable attributes of God, attributes that God shares with us, and then some non-communicable attributes of God that are just attributes to God alone. Right? Good? You're following with me? And the reason why I feel like I need to spend some time on this just today is last week, we just basically talked about how there is a God. You know, last week was the first week. If you missed it, I would just highly encourage you to go back. We just kind of gave arguments that there is a God, God exists. We looked at the classical arguments for God's existence, and then we talked about how God is triune. So we speak of God, we worship one God who eternally exists in three persons. So we talk about being, God being good or gracious or holy. It applies to the Father, Son, and Spirit. So all these attributes apply to God. Yes? You're still with me. So today, here's our, our focus. Our focus is just simply God is holy. It's interesting, as I, I was preparing and praying this week, I, there's like, where do I begin? I mean, all of the attributes work together, but like, where do you begin? It's not that so much that God has a supreme attribute, as much as this seems to be the attribute that's mentioned the most, that's repeated over and over again. This seems to be the focus of the Old Testament in many ways. And so we just want to start off by just saying, hey, God, what is God? Who is God? What is he like? God is holy. And so when I say that, what comes to your mind? Like, what do you think about And I just want to kind of break this down because maybe we're flooded with broken perspectives of God's holiness. Maybe we have some good perspectives of God's God's holiness. But I just want to slow down today. Even as I just look out, I'm like, God, help us see that you are holy. And I want to define that. I want to look at that. I want to see passages where God declares that in just a personal way. But I think one of the beautiful things for us today, church, is if we could view God in this way, is that God is holy. They're like, what is that? Let's, let's talk about that. So here's what we'll do. We'll actually uh, read Isaiah chapter 6, 
and then we'll, we'll pray, we'll talk about some more. My hope as we go through these attributes is to define it, clarify it, but also find a passage that clearly demonstrates this attribute or one of the attribute that we're going over. Make sense? Yes? All right, I just said it's long enough. Okay, here we go. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. Let's read Isaiah 6, verse 1. Isaiah, speaking, writing, says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, or I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs uh, from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. Verse nine, and he said, go. So I'll stop there. This is one of the most beautiful encounters we see of someone just experiencing seeing God. Now, here's what I want to say again. As I, I just want to clarify this. As we kind of jump into now the rest of this series, as we talk about God, my fear in this is, in, in my life, is just knowing information about God but not knowing God. You know, I know you guys know this. There's so many ways to talk about this, but I, we can know a lot about people without knowing people. I was the classic kid who knew, like, everything about Michael Jordan, but I didn't know Michael Jordan. But if you ask, like, it almost sounded like I did, the way I talked about him. Like, I knew everything about him. That's like my hero, right? Like, you can know a lot about someone and still not know them. And I think when it comes to God, my fear is that the church, we can know a lot about him but not know him. And this is one of those things as I'm preparing and studying and just praying over like this, this, this season for our church, I feel like this is a temptation for me just to know about him, but not know him. And so I really want us to just pray and just kind of say, Lord, I don't, I don't want to fall into that trap. I really want to know you. Like, I really want to know you. Uh, and so I, I did something I haven't done or done, I guess, in a while, but I, I wrote out a prayer for this. And I just want to like throw it up here. And as I kind of, as we pray, it's weird. I want this to kind of help um, just guide our hearts in this season of talking about the attributes of God. So here's a prayer. Uh, essentially, it's a prayer to avoid the trap of knowing about God. If you would just like, just read this with me. You can read it quietly in your head, but just read it. Father, thank you for revealing yourself to us through your word and through Jesus. As I learn about you, help me to avoid the trap of knowing about you, but not knowing you. I'm excited to learn about you and get to know who you are and what you're like but I don't want to love the information about you and miss out on the revelation of you. As I pursue knowledge, I'm prone to become puffed up, but may your love be poured out on my heart through the Holy Spirit, and may the humility of Jesus be produced in me. Help me to know you, to truly know you. Jesus, you promised to come in and dine with us. May we share a meal with you more than we share facts about you. Keep us from the temptation to make this about learning rather than about knowing you personally. I want to love you with my mind as we study about you, but I want to love you with my heart and soul as well. The reason why I want to write this is I just do pray that this is like a guiding prayer for us. I just feel like even for me, there is that temptation to study, to learn, but do we know? 
And so why don't you just bow your head, close your eyes, and let's just pray, God, we just want to know you. Father, we don't want this just to be empty words or rehearsed words. As much as we just do, as we, as we get to have the privilege of reading who you are, how you revealed yourself to us, we ask, God, that we would not just have information truly, but, God, we would just know you. Lord, I just ask that your spirit would fall on us. God, I ask that we would see you high and lifted up. Lord, I just ask that in my own life, in our, our church's life, that we'd get past the, the place of just maybe study or like an academic level. We want to love you, yes, with our mind, but God, I just pray there'd be so much more. So, Father, we just thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for your spirit who bears witness with our spirit. We thank you that you reveal the things of God through your spirit. So we just ask that you'd move and speak. Thank you, Jesus, in your precious name. Amen. Amen. It was about 12, maybe 13 years ago. I was like 21, 22, I don't know, somewhere around there. And I was at a, a middle school chapel. I used to oversee uh, like middle school chapels and, and you know, teaching the lessons at a Christian school. Uh, I used to kind of get the outside speakers in. Is that CCA here? Some of you know it, some of you don't. But I used to like oversee the chapels for the middle school. And I was just a young guy, 21, 22, and it's so fun to put together like chapels and teachings and some of those things. And uh, we had, uh, during that time, one of our main leaders, pastors, come in to, to speak. Um, and I was excited. I'm like, yes, we got this, you know, one of our main leaders come in and speak. And so he's there to speak at chapel, and I had no idea what he's going to do. He's, he's talking about the holiness of God, what we're talking about, essentially. And he, in the middle of the message, he said, just like, come on up. And I'm like, oh, gosh, you know, that fear. Like, what are we doing? So he calls me up on stage. There's like a room, like 350, I don't know, 11 to 12, 11 to 13-year-olds. And he calls me on stage, and he says, just stretch out your hands and your legs. And so he goes, go make a starfish. So I'm like doing this, right? And he goes, just like, you know, we're talking about being holy and set apart to God. What can you do with your hands? How can your hands be holy to God? I'm like, well, you can like use your hands to serve God. He's like, very good. What can you do with your feet? I'm like, well, your feet take you where you go. You, we're supposed to, you know, go and share the gospel. Yes. What can you do? And he's asking me all these questions about my body parts. Now, as I'm doing this, we're talking about the holiness unto God. I'm like, why does it feel cold and drafty in here? And I look down, and my flies just wide open. And I'm like 21, 22, and there's like a room full of like middle school age. And I just, I feel it. I look down, I see it. I make eye contact with him like we both see my flies open. And my stomach just drops. And really quickly with my hands out, I go, zip, and I put my hands back out. It was like not, it was not smooth at all. I don't, I don't know. And then I think he was trying to keep going with his message and ignore it. But I'm just like now doing this weird laugh. I'm like, <laughs> like so awkwardly, I don't, I feel like I blacked out. I really don't remember what happened after that. Other than like people are like, oh my gosh, your fly was down. You know, it was awful. When I, when I, so when I think of the holiness of God, this is Sally, the story that comes into my mind. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is when you think about the holiness of God, when you hear that word holy, set apart, what is that? Honestly, what comes to your mind? Like when you think of the idea of being holy or set apart, like God, I'm set apart for you. I want to be holy unto you. I'm holy yours. I want to be set apart for you. What comes to your mind? I think because in a lot of ways, sometimes we can hear that and maybe we have a broken idea of holiness. Maybe we, we view God in some negative way when we hear that word holy. Maybe we hear it in like a religious way. We don't understand in what way is it being communicated. And so really as we, we talk through this passage today, I think this story best describes it and declares what is it, this looks like, what it does to you, what's the outcome of this. Um, but I want to kind of clarify a few things. So there's really two points and how we'll kind of break this up mostly every week. We're going to look at holiness defined and then holiness displayed. So we want to define this. Holiness defined, like what is this? And then holiness displayed. I think this is so important. How, how do we see this played out? How do we see this attribute played out? So as we talk through the attributes of God, we'll kind of look at it through that lens. So first of this, holiness defined, holiness defined. Now, it is very hard to spend just one message on the holiness of God. Like in my mind, I'm going, man, there's just, there's so much. 
this is a series in and of itself. And for every single attribute that we do, I know it'll feel that way. So we want to define it. We want to clarify it. I think this is where I want to start. When we say let's define holiness, I want to see that holiness is more of a person than it is a concept or more than it is even an attribute. I want to see that holiness throughout scriptures is seen as a person. God declared himself so often as the holy one. I think a lot of times we do this. In so many attributes, we'd say uh, God gives peace, which is true, but God is peace. Or God gives love, which is true, but God is love. And I I want to say that God is holy. Holiness is more of a person, I'd say, than even maybe uh, some sort of uh, definition like purity or set apart. I'd say we've got to see it as holiness. So here's a couple verses really quick. Isaiah 40. The Lord says, God says, Isaiah 43, I am the Lord, your holy one. The creator of Israel, your king. Isaiah 40. To whom then will you liken me that I should be his equal, says the holy one. There is just this phrase, you see this in Job, you see this throughout the scriptures of God saying, I'm the holy one. It's me. Holiness is a person. In John chapter 6, when when Peter has this great confession of who Jesus is, if you remember, Jesus just talked about communion, you must eat my body, drink my blood. We're told in John 6, many people walked away from Jesus that day. They didn't understand the language he was using. They're going, is this this guy a cannibal? Has he lost it? What is going on? It says, based on the multitudes, many left him that day. And then Jesus looks at the disciples and says, do you also want to leave? And Peter has, I think, the best response. He goes, where else shall shall we go? Like, where else can we go? You alone, have, you alone have the words of life. And then in John 6, 69, here's what Peter says specifically. He says, we have come to believe and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I want to hear Peter's confession. We have come to believe and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. He goes, this Holy One that we read about throughout the Old Testament scriptures, you are that. You are the Holy One. You are that in the flesh. The reason why I bring this up again is before we define it in a just kind of definition way, I want you to see more than anything holiness and being holy. God is holy. God, that's just him. It's a person. God is the holy one. But like, what does this look like or how do we describe this? How do we define this? I like how one author, his name is Sam Storms, here's what he says. He says, to be holy is to be characterized by purity and blamelessness and integrity, both in terms of one's essence and one's activity. God is holy in who he is. God, God is holy in what he does. And I want to just see God can't do things that are just not holy. Whatever comes from him, whatever decisions are made, are from a place of holiness. And as we talk through the attributes of God, I think even just in the future, we've got to see that all these attributes that we go, I don't understand. Whenever I get asked, like, why would God, it's so, you know, like, how do I even answer? Um, but you've got to go, we've got to see that answer through his attributes. God is righteous. He's only going to do righteous things. God is holy. He's only going to do it through holiness. We've got to see that. Even though it might be incomprehensible to us, we've got to see it's through his character. And so God is holy. Now, I think it's more than just moral purity. I think some have described God's holiness as just moral purity. I think it's that and then some. We've got to see that God is completely holy and set apart, that there is no one like him. One more definition. I love this author. He said it. He says, God, listen, is infinitely holy. Creatures, finitely holy. He is holy from himself. Creatures are holy by derivation from him. He is not only holy, but holiness, holiness in the highest degree, is his sole prerogative. See, I want to see that, that, that he just, he just, it's from his core, from who he is. And this is just so important. So as we just break down that God is holy, that God is set apart, 
the, the word in Hebrews, this word for holy, is, is kadesh, and, or kadosh. And here's how it's described. It says to cut, to separate, to be distinct, and set apart. There's this constant focus of God. There's no one like you. Like no one comes close to you. You are set apart. What's interesting is this is his attribute that he also shares with us, and I've called you to be holy. It's interesting, the, the word holy used in Hebrew is actually oftentimes used towards people and their pagan gods. It was used towards women being prostitutes to their pagan gods. You can actually see that word, he said, you are holy, like you are set apart for this god, maybe of sex, of maybe of money, that people were set apart or holy to these pagan gods. That, that this idea can be used in other terminology, but I want to see that God said, no, but it's supposed to be holy unto me set apart to me. You know, if you think about this just in the Old Testament, you feel like the whole Old Testament is just a revelation of God's holiness. I mean, as the passages, I was like, okay, should I read something out of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers? Like, there's just so many passages where you just see that God is holy, that you, they wrote on the articles in the temple, holiness unto the Lord. That was a focus that's supposed to be set apart unto the Lord. You feel like the way God revealed himself to Moses was just through the lens of holiness. I mean, the Old Testament and the New Testament is just filled with this idea that God is completely set apart. And the reason why I want to start with this is we got to see that there is no one like God. And I just want the, the scriptures kind of to do something to our hearts a little bit. Here's some verses we'll throw up here. I just want us to let, let it sink in before we move on. 1 Samuel 2.2, 2, there is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Exodus 15.11, Moses saying, who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praise, working wonders? Revelation 15.4, they cry out, for you alone are holy. I just want to see, like, this is like the, the heartbeat of the scriptures. Like, when it comes to worship and responding to God, it was because of God just being completely holy. I think worship stems from this idea that God is holy. And so, again, for me, one author put it, he goes, the holiness of God is the centerpiece of God's attributes. Even though there's not one above the other, you can see they kind of stem from just that God is holy, set apart, completely removed. And I love what Tozer said with this. He said, when you talk about the holiness of God, you have not only the problem of an intellectual grasp, but also a sense of personal vileness, which is all much too much to bear. If you've ever come face to face with this God, if you've ever been alone, and God may be speaking to you or revealing something to you or pointing out sins of where you're going off in your life, there's something where you go, wow, God, you are God and I'm not. And there's something so beautiful that happens when you realize, like, I'm in desperate need for, of you and for you because you are far above, you are set apart. And so here's what it leads to. It leads to me, I think, here in Isaiah 6, holiness displayed. To me, it leads to this idea of, like, I think one of the greatest stories where you see what happens when someone comes face to face with God's holiness. So just stay with me because I want you to imagine this for a moment. Like, how would you respond if God right now revealed himself? If we saw the Lord right now, just the heavens open up, the roof opens up, we see the Lord sit on the throne high and lift it up. Like, what would we see? How would we respond? What would that do to us? I think we'd have, if not the exact same, but a, a very similar response to Isaiah. Woe is me. And so I want to look at just, I think, uh, holiness in this way, in this context, in an experiential way, and what it does and, and how it plays out. So let's read this again. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. We're going to see how this holiness was displayed in Isaiah's life. Isaiah 6, verse 1, read with me. He says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. All right, this is important. I really believe this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. I mean, this is not a coincidence. He says, when this king died, that's when I saw the Lord. Let me just point this out. I, Uzziah was an incredible king. Uh, Israel didn't have a lot of great kings, but Uzziah was one of them. Uzziah became king at 16 years old. He reigned for 52 years. 
All right. He, he, was, a king, he was a great king. Uh, we're told that during that time, he expanded Israel's borders. He tore down the Philistines' wall. He invented war machinery. He grew their agriculture. He set up towers in the desert, and, and agriculturally, he set up like farmland. I mean, what he did was amazing. It actually says in 2 Chronicles 26, 15, it says, so Uzziah's fame spread far and wide. It says, as far as the Assyrians to the north and the Egyptians to the south, everyone knew who Uzziah was. Like, it's like, oh my gosh, this Uzziah guy is taking the nation of Israel to another level. Like, everyone loved Uzziah. He was a powerful king. Now, here's what I'm saying to this. It was in the year that he died that, that Isaiah saw the Lord. Now, this is significant to me. You see, I think so often in our lives that maybe someone or something can kind of get in the way of us from seeing God. And a lot of times it's a good thing. Like, I really do want you to think about this. It was when Uzziah died, he saw the Lord. You see, I think, again, there are things in our life that are taking the place of God, and those things need to be removed or die for us to see the Lord. My question to you today is, really, what Uzziah is in your life? Like, do you have something, a good thing in your life that's keeping you from seeing the Lord? Like, I really do, when I talk with people, meet with people, you see that so often it can be a person, it can be a relationship, it can be success, it can be money. There's so many things that can get in the way of us from seeing the Lord. You see, a lot of times good things get in the way of us from seeing the Lord. I think about those who are like dating and they're like heavily involved in a relationship and I'm like, hey, where's God in this time in your life? And it's like, well, you know, he's there somewhere. But it's like so often things need to die for us to see the Lord. And you see this in spiritual leaders. I mean, we see this over and over again. That sometimes people can fall in love with the leader more than they fall in love with the Lord. And sadly, this is what Isaiah said. He goes, man, when, when Uzziah died, that's when I saw the Lord. I don't, think it's just throwing, I don't think it's just a flippant sentence that's throwing it in there. I think it's making the point. I think there are things that get in the way of us from seeing the Lord. Like, I really do want you to ask, like, God, what is in my life that's getting in the way from me from seeing you? Do I have any sort of Uzziahs? Any sort of thing? Like, again, Uzziah brought prosperity. His name was associated with prosperity. His name was associated with making us better. It was a beautiful, like, he did a lot of good, except he got in the way. And it was in the year that he died, he saw the Lord. If you know Uzziah's ending, his story is kind of sad. He got prideful. He got arrogant. He actually thought, I can be a king and a priest. I can do priestly duties. He goes in the temple. He tries to perform a priestly task, and he's filled with leprosy, and he had leprosy until the day he died. He got filled with pride because of his prosperity. And the point I'm trying to make, though, with this is, again, Uzziah got in the way, I believe, of the people from seeing the Lord. And it would be wrong for me to, like, move on from that point without just spending time on that. I want us to see the Lord. I really want our generation, I want our people, I just want people in the world and South, I just want people to see the Lord high and lifted up. So what needs to die for that to happen? There's things that need to die, I do believe, for us to see the Lord in this way. Jesus' call to follow him is come, deny yourself, pick up your cross daily and follow me. Jesus' call to really knowing him was die. It's just so often we see that. It's so different in the world. It's the way of Jesus is you want to find your life, lose it. You want to know who you are, what you're made for, you got to lose your life, and then you'll find it. In the year that King Uzziah died, that's when he saw the Lord. And again, I don't know. I don't want to try to force application here. I just pray the Holy Spirit makes it known to you. I think in my own life, there are things that can be Uzziahs in my life, and they can keep me good things even from seeing the Lord. So here's what it says. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, okay? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And then it says what? And he's sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. Again, unbelievable. Like the heavens open up, and where is God? We see this. It's, it's an obvious point, but where is God? On a throne. I love this because it seems like the, the center point or the focus of heaven is what? A throne. Like we got to be reminded of this. Like the heavens open, and God is just there on a throne. 
The point is God is ruling, God is reigning, God is in control. I know we know this. I know we say this sometimes. I feel like sadly in, in a cliche way, like someone could be like, I'm really going through it. And like, well, God's on the throne. We, we got to be careful of that. Like I really, I said it probably way too often. Like I just found out I have a terrible news, but I'm going through this. Someone's like, don't forget God's on the throne. Sometimes that, that, that might not be the best thing to share at that moment in time, right? I, I, I get that, that we're trying to like love on people, but sometimes that can actually come across maybe not like loving. But I do think this is incredibly powerful. I do think we need to be reminded that when the heavens open up, God is ruling and reigning. That they see him on the throne high and lifted up. That is so beautiful. It says, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The idea of why does it point this out, a lot of people speculate the train of his robe is long. It filled the temple just to speak of his glory, his majesty. The longer the train of the robe, the more glory one has. But I think here's the point. Where did Isaiah see the Lord? Where did he see him? Say it. Where Where did he see the Lord? In the temple. You know what's funny? I think for some, the last place they'd ever expect to see God is in the temple. Like, I think there are some people who come to church every week, and it's like, wow, I was surprised. I feel like God met me there. It's almost like we're shocked if God meets us at church. Like, we're, like we're shocked if God meets us in the temple. I love this. Isaiah sees the Lord where? In the temple. That means Isaiah, in some ways, is pursuing the Lord. He's open, like, God, I want to I hear from you. I want to put, put myself in a position where I can experience you. I just find this so beautiful. Let's not be shocked when we hear from God or God moves or speaks to us in church. Like, let's not be shocked by that. I love that he sees the Lord in the temple. He put himself in a place where he can hear the Lord. But here's, his, here's what he's experiencing. He sees the Lord in the temple, high and lifted up. And here's what he has. He sees God, he sees himself, and then he sees the need for the world. And this is so important. There is this progression that takes place. When you come face to face with God, like the holiness of God, you see God for who he is, you see you for who you are, and then you see the, the need for the world. As one author put it, it's this upward vision, an inward vision, and an outward vision. Upward, inward, outward. You see this upward vision of God, this inward vision of yourself, and this outward vision of the world, what needs to happen. So he just sees the Lord. Now what happens? Let's read verse 2. Uh, make sure we're kind of staying on, on track here. He says, And above him stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Now this idea of seraphim is really unique here to Isaiah. We see something similar in Ezekiel 1 with the cherubim. We see something similar in Revelation 4. But it's, it's really unique. But this, this heavenly angelic being has six wings, covered his face, feet, and flew. The idea of some is this. He covered his face because... Even the angelic beings know, who am I to look upon God? Covered his feet because it's saying, God, who are you to look like? For you to look upon me, me, for who I am. Like, don't look upon me. Almost like maybe ashamed in some ways. With who he flew. But this idea of the seraph from the angelic being, it says they cried out to one another, holy, 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 in verse 3, is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So I want you to imagine this. Isaiah sees God on a throne. He sees these angelic beings, and they're crying out one to another which I just love how that, that description. It's like, hey, did you know God is holy? Like, yeah, did you know God is holy? They're crying out one to another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Again, this takes, if you just study the scriptures, this takes you to Revelation 4, where you see Jesus, the Lamb of God, on the throne. You see heaven's focus and attention on him. And in Revelation chapter 4, the focus of heaven, it says this in Revelation 4, 8. The four living creatures, each having six wings, so some think this is the same, were full of eyes, listen, around and within. And they do not rest day or night saying, holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. I want you to hear this. It's a similar angelic being, if not the same. But this heavenly being sees God. It says it has eyes without and within. Like, I'm fascinated by that phrase. The eyes constantly viewing out, viewing the Lord, and then these eyes to see inward. And I think there's a sense where it's like, I see God, I see who you are, and I also see myself. And you are holy, holy, holy. There, we need eyes oftentimes to see within ourselves. Like, God, oh, I'm not. 
I think one of the best things we can do is when we see God, we can we truly see ourselves. When I know who God is, I go, oh, God, you're God, I'm not. So these, these heavenly creatures in Revelation 4, they're crying out, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And these seraphim here are crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And here's the idea. This is the only attribute of God that's actually repeated three times in a row. Sometimes we see attributes of God repeated twice, like you might see grace, grace. And the idea of an attribute being repeated is to just emphasize the strength of that attribute. So you might see an attribute mentioned in the Old Testament where it's like, wow, grace, grace, or peace, peace. And you'll see that. And you go, that is amazing. Like, God is double down on this. But here's what's interesting about holy. Holy is the only attribute of God that's used three times. It's the only one that says, like, no, holy, holy. I, we cannot emphasize enough the holiness of God is one way to view it. That, yes, God is peace. Yes, God is grace. Yes, God is good. But holy, holy, holy. Or maybe the idea is the, these seraphim, these angelic beings, they see the Father and they say holy. They see the Son and say holy. They see the Spirit and say holy. This idea, though, of holy, 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 Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come, or for them, the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And I can't imagine just seeing this worship service in heaven. You know, I, I might have mentioned this before, but what I love about when we gather, when any church gathers, here's how I like to view it. We start at 1030. I don't know if you guys do that, by the way. We start at 1030. And we start. And no, it's so cool. I'm <laughs> just fascinating. We start. It's so beautiful. There's like a call to worship. It's like, hey, everybody, to prepare your hearts just to worship God. And I, I love this idea because it's almost like heaven's already just worshiping. They don't rest day or night. And we're kind of like, hey, let's kind of live stream and jump on in and worship with them. And I really love that thought of just like heaven's going through, heaven's worshiping. And we're like, all right, this is the time we're going to jump in. They're already worshiping. Let's jump on in with them. And that's why we write, write lyrics that are very similar. I mean, because we just go, oh, God, you're so holy. There's no one like you. They do not rest day or night. They have eyes that look out and they have eyes that look within. And they go, oh, God, I just can't help. I can't help myself. You're so holy. You're so set apart. And so Isaiah is seeing this, and listen to this phrase, the whole earth is full of his glory. But keep reading. It says in verse 4, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I just want to put this out. The whole earth is filled with glory, and then it begins to shake. This word for glory, you might know this because we see this everywhere, but the word for glory is this Hebrew word, kabod. The whole earth is filled with glory. Kabod. Maybe it's like kabod temple. Like, oh, I know that. Like, you know what that means. Like, like glory temple. I don't know. Uh, but you see the word glory, or kabod, is this word for weight, heaviness, substance, Think about it this way and stay with me, because I think this is so beautiful. God is holy. God is weighty, glorious, heavy, meaning, if you think about it like this, if you drop an object that is heavier than water into water, what happens? That water is going to overflow. It's going to spill out. If I drop a bowling ball, it's like a bucket of water, you're going to see the water not be still anymore. It's going to be completely shook. It's going to be shook, shaken up, it's foundation, it's going to be complete, it can't be the same. Because something heavier than it came into its life, essentially. Here's the idea. When you experience the goodness, the glory, the holiness of God, God is weighty, God is something, you cannot stay and be the same. If you've truly ever experienced the glory of God, if you've ever truly ever experienced like, wow, God, you are God, I'm not. You can't respond the same way. Your life can't be the same. The foundation shook. Why? Weightiness, heaviness just came in. And I do want us to see this because when you've really tasted and seen the Lord is good, when you've, like Moses, when you're, Moses show, when you're saying to God, God, show me your glory. When the glory of God comes in, just things shake. Things cannot stay the same. And again, if you're a follower of Jesus, you know this. You're like, yes, when I experienced Jesus, my life could not be the same. I say this, if your life is the same, have you experienced the holiness and glory of God? Because your life can't stay the same. You can't have an object heavier than that, another object come into its presence and have everything stay the same. Things are going to be shaken up. Know this, things will be shaken up when God comes into your life. It just has to happen. 
We need to have this fresh revelation of Jesus on the throne, high and lifted up. It's, it changed everything. Now, I love Isaiah's response because to me, this is so key. Look at verse 5. He sees God. What is the first thing that comes out of his mouth? Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. Here's what he says. He said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. God shows up on the throne, and what does Isaiah say? He goes, woe is me. This word woe is like a curse. He's like cursing himself. Cursed is me. Woe is me, for I am lost. I like the other version of, for I am undone. Like I am coming apart. Like I cannot continue to be Isaiah. Like woe is me. I'm completely coming apart here. I'm a mess. I'm undone. God is doing something. Here's what I love about this. Isaiah is what? What is Isaiah? What's his role? What's his job? He's a prophet, right? A prophet's job a lot of times was basically to pronounce maybe judgments or speak on behalf of God. Uh, A prophet might go to people and say, hey, repent. You need to repent. If you don't repent, this is going to happen. So a prophet oftentimes would do this. Isaiah did this. Don't forget, Isaiah. this is not Isaiah chapter 1. This is Isaiah 6. So for the last like five chapters, Isaiah's been calling out a lot of people. He's been looking at their sin and saying, woe is you. I'm going to actually throw up a few verses. I want you to see this. Isaiah, in just chapter 5 alone, look at what he does here. Isaiah chapter 6, or chapter 5. He says, Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of vanity. Verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. 21. Woe to those. 22. Woe to men. I want you to see Isaiah, this prophet, is going, Woe is you, and woe is you, and woe is you. And then he sees the Lord, and what does he say? Woe is me. There comes a point in time where you go, I can't compare myself to others. I've seen God. God, there's no one like you. Woe is me. Again, it's really interesting how sometimes people can experience God and almost become self-righteous. This was obviously the issue, I think, with the Pharisees, and they basically could compare themselves to others, and Jesus is like, woe is you, Pharisees. Like Matthew 23, woe is you, woe is you. The point of this being we need to not just look at others and, and compare ourselves, obviously, but we need to personally experience the Lord, because when, when that happens, you go, just woe is me. What, what about them? It doesn't matter. Woe is me. I, I need it. I'm undone. You know, you realize when you see the Lord, you, you really just truly see yourself for who you are. There's something that's incredibly humbling. You know, I think about it in like the simplest terms, right? My, my son, Micah, six, we'll play basketball in the front yard. Man, when we play basketball, I'm, I'm a monster compared to him, right? He shoot, I can like block it. <laughs> I, I mess up sometimes. I really try to be nice. But sometimes I'll shoot, I'll just like grab it out of the air and be like, what are you going to do about it? Like, it's just fun. Like, I love to like back him down and dunk on him on like the eight foot rim. It's so much fun, right? But imagine like LeBron pulls up, right? Or I don't know, Steph Curry or whoever your guy is. Imagine like the best NBA player pulls up. I'd be like, woe is me. Like, if they pull up, you go, okay, I'm not as good as I thought it was to the six-year-old. Like, if they pull up, you go, I see myself for who I am. You see, Isaiah looks pretty good, obviously, to these other nations. What do those call evil good and good evil? Listen, there's something to be said about that. Isaiah's not wrong. Isaiah is not wrong in his judgments. But Isaiah needed to see himself after seeing the Lord. He needed to see the Lord first and go, wow, 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 woe is me. I'm undone. I'm lost. I need Jesus. You see, I think, again, it's something for the church. We can't just be like, woe is you. It is woe is me. We might not be wrong. There's yes, woe is them. Anyone compared to God, woe is them. But there needs to be this experience that we have with God. Isaiah was already sent, but now he's going to be resent in a moment. Isaiah was already going to the nations, but God's like, I need to, I need to fix this. I need, I need to change your perspective a little bit. I need to ch- shake things up a little bit. I need you to encounter who I am. And so, again, this phrase, look at verse 5, because it's just, I can't get away from it. Woe is me. Woe is me, for I am undone. I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of an unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You know what he's doing, obviously. He sees the Lord, and what does he do? He confesses. He's just confessing sin. 
I mean, this is really the only response when you have an encounter with God. When you've tasted and seen the Lord is good, when you've experienced the holiness of God, all you can do is go, woe is me. All you can do is confess your sin. Like the only right response to encountering is confession of sin. That's exactly what he does. I saw the Lord. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Woe is me. That's the only appropriate response. You see, here's why this is, is, is so important. Confession is key to everything. I mean, confession is necessary in every facet of life. This is, he says, woe is me. And I want this phrase, by the way, I'm a man of unclean lips. Like, why does he say that? Like, why does he point out his lips? Again, one thought is this. Um, a prophet's lips are like what a dancer's, you know, legs are, or a pianist's, like, fingers are, right? Like, that's like his livelihood. That's like the best of him. Like, if you think of, like, the best of him, it'd be his lips. He's a prophet. Like, this is his job. He communicates. He talks. He speaks. He speaks on behalf of God, even. And basically, he says, I need to confess the best of me as being just wicked. Like, the best of me is lost. The best of me is unclean. The best of me before God is still dis- disgusting and dirty. I'm, I'm a man of unclean lips. Even the best part of Isaiah, he realized, is filthy before God. Do we get that? I love what Tim Keller says about that thought. He says, listen, the holiness of God does not simply lead Isaiah to repent of his sins. Plenty of people repent of their sins who really don't understand the gospel. The holiness of God leads Isaiah to repent of his righteousness, his best deeds, his pride and joy, the thing he felt he does best. That explains why he feels like he's coming apart. Think about this. You know, we all have something that maybe make us feel good about ourselves. Maybe you have a great education. Maybe you make a good amount of money. Maybe you have a lot of friendships. There's something you, you know, when you're having a bad day, I notice a lot of us can do this. It's like, we will try to remind ourselves of maybe a good aspect or part about, about us, all right? Like, this is maybe the glue that keeps us together. This is the thing that's like, okay, well, this is falling apart, but as long as I have this, I'm good. And for Isaiah, you could say it's his skill, it's his, pro- his speaking, his his being a prophet. That's like his title. That's who he is. And he sees God and goes, no, 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 the best part of me is still unclean. You see, I think, again, that best part of you is still far off. There's something about saying, God, the best part of me, the thing that I might want to boast in, the thing I might want to remind myself when times are bad or difficult, and I can say, well, at least I have this going on. That's nothing. Like, that's nothing. I'm undone. There's something really good about not just repenting of your sins, as he says here, but of repenting of your righteousness, going, God, even this best part of me. Yeah, I forget if his, um, Oswald Chambers, who basically talked about that, like the two greatest dangers essentially is just not repenting or you do repent, but of the wrong stuff. You repent of just all the wrong things. You're not repenting of even the good things. We have to repent of everything. He goes, wow, I'm a man of unclean lips. But you know what happens immediately after, which I find incredibly beautiful? He confesses. He confesses like with his lips. I'm a man of unclean lips. Now look at verse six. What happens right next? Verse six, it says, then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that had been taken with tongs from the altar. And the seraphim touched my mouth. And he said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. You see, he confesses his sin. He confesses with his lips. He even points out that his lips, his best part of him is still weak. He confesses and then the seraphim, this angelic being, takes tongs, goes to the altar, burning coal, takes a coal and touches his lips. And says, your guilt is taken away. Your sins atoned for. Now, here's what I love. What's an altar? An altar, and it's believed that this altar was where, basically, animal sacrifices were made. That this animal was sacrificed. Its blood was shed. Imagine you sacrifice an animal, blood being shed, poured out on the altar. They poured the blood onto the altar. Imagine this blood-stained coal. This blood-stained coal touching his lips. You see, 
The idea is he confesses his sins and the altar, he's saying, hey, I'm going to take a call from the altar, mind you, that because of the altar, your sins are atoned for. Because of the shedding of blood, your sins are atoned for. Do you see the emphasis of the altar? It's taking a call from the altar. You see, the idea for us today would be the cross, the altar being the cross, that on the cross, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, his blood was shed, and he atoned for our sins. He covered our sins. He removed our sins. He removed our guilt. The idea is that there must be confession, and there must be blood that has been shed. Blood was poured out on that altar. This blood-stained coal, I do believe, touched his lips and says, look, your sins are removed. Why? What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There must be an atonement. There must be a sacrifice sacrifice made. And that I do believe this, the Bible is constantly using these stories and analogies to point to something greater. That is the greater altar. That is the cross. That is Jesus. To say, hey, confession is made. Blood has been shed. Sins are forgiven. We need to see the progression of how important this is. Confession is made. Blood was shed. Sins are forgiven. We need to see that the blood of Jesus has been shed. There's confession. Sins are removed. Your guilt's removed. I love this. Because what is John saying in 1 John 1, 1.9? If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Like, hear this. Isaiah sees God and says, woe is me. It's like, yes, that's it. Because if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you. So Isaiah goes, woe is me. I'm undone. That's it. You get it. Here's who you are in light of who God is. You're forgiven. I love the angels like, hey, don't you get it? The altar. The altar. The bloodstained coal. You're forgiven. Your sins are removed. Your guilt is removed. There is something so beautiful. I don't want to pass over this because we can't move on from this quickly. You need to understand that God is faithful and just when you confess your sins. This word confession in 1 John 1, 9 is just this word like homologeo. It's based on the idea of to agree with God. It's based on saying, God, I know you view my sins this way. I agree with you. I know you say this about my sin. I agree. I know my sins will do this to me and are doing this to me, and I know what you say and think and feel about sin, and so I agree, God. I'm not just agreeing with you in election. I agree. I completely agree. It means to agree. Confession means to truly agree with God. God, you say this about my sin, that my sin separates me from you. My sin is going to basically damn my soul, be separated from you. God, I agree. And God's like, yes, you agree? You confess your sin? I'm faithful. I'm just to forgive you your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That is so beautiful. Paul would say it in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth, Lord Jesus, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you confess, he goes, I'm a man of unclean lips. And he took those lips, confessed his sin. And again, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus, your Lord, God, you raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I think there's something so powerful about just, it's not just your lips, it's like your heart responds of, God, you're good, you're holy, I'm not, I confess, I need you, I'm broken, I'm lost without you. And God's like, yes, that's the key. You see, again, heaven is not about good people entering in and bad people not entering in. It's about humble people entering in. People who are humbled inside of the Lord. People who say, God, I've experienced you and I'm nothing. It, it's the humbler in, the, pride are, the prouder out. It's more that idea. Those who are saying, I'm willing to repent, I'm willing to confess. As soon as Isaiah confesses, the angel goes, your guilt's removed. The, your, your sins are atoned for. The altar, the cross. Church, do we get how beautiful this image is? Do we get how faithful God is? That when you truly see him, I mean, the only right response is, woe is me. The only right response is, I'm a sinner. I'm undone. And, and God is just so faithful to go, yes, that's it. That's it. That's exactly how I want you to respond. Not with arrogance. Not with this pride. I don't need you, God. Who are you? No, just God, woe is me. God goes, yeah, you're forgiven. Don't forget the altar. Don't forget the blood-stained coal. And as soon as Isaiah confesses, what does God do? I mean, God is so good this way. They go, yep, you get it. Now, God asks a question, and I love when God asks questions. I think we should pay attention when God asks questions. Read with me uh, next, 
in verse uh, 6, or verse 8, God says then, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. And he said, go. So I want you to like follow the progression with me. I, I try to write it out this way. He caught sight of the Lord, right? He caught sight of the Lord. Then he was conscious of his sin. Then he confessed his sin. Then he was cleansed from his sin. And then he was commissioned to go. Like think about that progression. Like we need to catch sight of the Lord. You need to con- confess. When you confess or when you're conscious of your sin, you confess it, you're cleansed from it. And then God's like, go. And I love that because like, God's like, go. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Who will go for us? And Isaiah's response, here I am, Lord, send me. And he's like, all right, go. And basically commissions to go to the nations. Keep doing what you've been doing, go. And God is so faithful this way. Because here's the thing. We might not feel qualified. We not, might not feel like we're ready. But God's like, you know, I'm just looking for people who are willing to admit that they are broken and lost without me. They're desperate need for me. And go, go, go. Tell the world. The same thing Jesus says, go. Go, make disciples. Like, we have this great, but I am. And I'm sending you. And go. And there's something so beautiful about this. And here's what I want to point out. Because there's a weird question that comes out. How did Isaiah see the Lord? Like, who did Isaiah see? I thought no one can see God and live. So who did Isaiah see? According to John, in John chapter 12, John was writing commentary on Isaiah 6 and the passages after. So John, the apostle, is commenting on Isaiah and who he saw that day. And here's what John says he saw. John 12, 41. John writes, these things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him, referring to Jesus, the context being Jesus. Here's what I want you to see. Who did John see on the throne that day? He saw Jesus. Do I just say speculation? No, John said this. The Bible interprets the Bible. John says that Isaiah saw Jesus. When he saw the Lord, he saw Jesus. And Jesus says, go, go. I love, the, I love that the Bible does this oftentimes. Then he's like, hey, he saw Jesus that day. Jesus sent him. Here's why this is so important. Because if God is holy, I cannot approach him. God is unapproachable, and yet he approaches. This is what I love about the holiness of God, because I don't want to get lost in this topic or this attribute. When you realize God is God and I'm not, you kind of go, well, how can I ever come to God? You can't. God comes to you. See, just like he did with Isaiah, just like he did, obviously, in the person of Jesus, God comes to us. The inapproachable God approaches. Do we get that? The God who is unapproachable approaches. I love this about our God. Who am I to approach God? Who am I to go to God and say, hey, God, here I am, send me. I could never do that. But God approaching me and asking, hey, who shall I send? See, I, I, again, the holiness of God means that God is God. I'm not. I'm separate. He's far. He's distinct. He's unique. And yet, this unapproachable God approaches us. That is so, that is the gospel. The gospel is that God approaches us. The gospel is that God comes to us. The gospel is that God is the pursuer. That I was dead in my sin. I was far from God. I was lo- God's like, let me come to you. I want you just to know and hear it this way. You know that God is pers- in pursuing you right now? Like, I don't know where you're at, what you're doing, what your life is looking like, but I want you to know that there's a God who loves you and is pursuing you. There's a God who's holy, so set apart, so distinct, so worthy of all glory, and yet he pursues us. We need to see this more than just a story. We need to see that the heart of God is a heart of pursuit. We need to see that the gospel itself is God's in pursuing you. I, I dwell in light that's unapproachable, and yet I approach you. That blows me away. That, God, you're, you're pursuing me from the very beginning. Adam, where are you? God was just constant pursuit of us. God is still pursuing. And I really do believe whether you're a follower of Jesus right now or you're not a follower of Jesus, we need to see the heart of God as a heart of pursuit. He says, I'm going to come to you. My hope is that we would catch sight of the Lord, that we would see Jesus for who he is, that Jesus is on the throne high and lifted up, that Jesus loves you enough to say, I'm coming to you. 
Church, I want us to see Jesus. God is a God who is holy and set apart. He's so good that he comes to us. The holiness of God is one of those things where, again, it's not in a silo. I fully don't understand it. It's one of those things where I go, oh, God, I'm trying to understand how, how you work. Like, you're holy. I don't get it. But yet, this unknowable God is made knowable. This in, uh, incomprehensible God it, it says, I want to come to you. It's unbelievable what the Lord has done. So here's the idea for, I just want to close with. God is holy, and he's called us to holiness. And for, for those who follow Jesus, God goes, I've called you out of darkness into light. I'm holy. Be holy. It's 1 Peter 1.16 where he said that, be holy for I am holy. It's the author of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. He says, pursue peace with all and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You hear that? Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Jesus has made us holy because he's holy. I could never make myself holy. I could never make my part, myself set apart for God. But Jesus has set us apart. Jesus has made us holy. Jesus' righteousness and holiness was, in a sense, exchanged or substituted, given to my account. He says, now, now, practically, live into that. Be holy as he is holy. Be set apart as he is set apart. Church, I really do believe we need to be set apart. Like, we can't just look and do and think and agree with everything the world says. We are called to be holy and set apart the way God is. Amen? Here's what I want to do. I just want to slow down and worship. I just want to end our time by focusing on who God is. My, my prayer is just say, Lord, we want to see you high and lifted up. We want to see you, God, on the throne. We want to see you for who you are. I want, you, I want us to see Jesus. As John says, this is Jesus. Let us see Jesus right now. Amen? Why don't you bow your head, close your eyes with me for just a second. Slow down. Just prepare your hearts to worship. Prepare your hearts to focus, take in the presence of God, to not make this necessarily just a study where you learn new things, but again, that we would just know him. So let's, let's pray. Father, we just want to right now slow down and just say, holy, holy, holy. God, there is no one like you. You are unique. You are set apart. God, we thank you that in your holiness, you have come to us. You've approached us. We thank you, God, that when we confess sin, you are quick to forgive. God, that you're quick to restore. You're quick to send. Lord, I ask that we'd have the same desire. That, Lord, we would just say, here I am. Send me. God, send our people today. We are ascended people. You've already sent us. You've already commissioned us. Jesus, we ask that we can live into that, that we would be holy as you are holy. We confess that we're not. We confess that we're sinners, that apart from you, God, we are nothing. But Jesus, we thank you for who you are and what you've done, that you make all things new. And we just want to praise you and say, God, there's no one like you. So even now, as we just slow down, we just want to acknowledge that, Jesus, you are on the throne, high and lifted up. Jesus, you are worthy. That heaven right now, they do not rest day or night, is crying out, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. That day and night, Lord, and we just want to even right now join in. We want to join in with your creation. We want to join in with heaven. We want to join in with all the churches across the world on different continents who are crying out that same thing. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. God, you are good. We just praise you now. In your name, Jesus.